If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. So we've been in this series uh, in the book of John for a while. We've been in this chapter. Uh, this is our third week now going through this chapter. And if you've missed any of these messages specifically uh, for John 17, I just really want to encourage you to go back to our website or go on the app or go online and try to kind of pour through these so that you really get the picture of what Jesus is praying here for us as the church. I think it's just really important for us to know what it is that Jesus actually desires. And again, uh, if you've missed any of this, we're in the kind of the last hours of Jesus' life. So he's really crystal clear on what it is that he desires and what it is that he's praying for. And and you just really got to get behind what he's praying for. This is such a a sweet, sweet passage here, John 17. Um, and, and, and in fact, John Knox, who is a Scottish reformer, on his deathbed, it said that he would uh, ask his friends and his wife to pray this and to read this passage over him uh, as he was dying. Martin Luther uh, has said this of this passage. He said, this is truly beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, that's Jesus, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, and so wide, no one can fathom it. And if you were here last week, we really kind of stood on this as we opened up this chapter, that this is, Jesus is like, I mean, he's not wasting any words in this moment. This is like, if you squeeze him, this is what's coming out of him. And in this prayer, uh, what he's praying for for us is he's praying for our holiness. He's praying uh, for our wholeness, this integrity, this that we would be a whole person. Uh, and all of us, regardless of where you are in your kind of relationship or your journey with the Lord, uh, that's what we're all striving for. We all want to be a whole person. We want to have wholeness in our life. And Jesus is saying it comes a different way than what the world offers. It only comes through life with me. Uh, Jesus is praying for our, our mission. He, he's praying for the purpose of our life, that we would bear witness with all of our lives, everything we say and everything that we do and everything we do with our lives to the worth and the glory of God so that the world would believe in who Jesus is. And then lastly, in this prayer, he's praying for truth. Because you can't live your life towards something that you're not convinced of. You can't give your life to something that you're not uh, absolutely sure of. So Jesus prays, I want them to know the truth, my truth, my words, and I want them to be utterly convinced of it so that they would build their life on that church. He wants us to know who he is and to see God and be sure about. So there's three things that you see in this prayer that Jesus wants for you uh, as we get to the section that we're going to be in today. He wants wholeness of heart. Wholeness of heart. He says, I'm praying that they would be holy. I'm praying that they'd be whole people. Purpose in life. I don't want them just kind of wandering aimlessly, and I don't want them just kind of chasing after all those things. I don't want them going after the, 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 uh, uh, the desire to indulge, the desire to inquire, the desire to impress. I have so much more for them. So I want them to understand real purpose in their life and then foundational truth. I don't want them to have to struggle with fear and, and doubt and wonder. I want them to be rooted in and built on this bedrock truth. And then that's going to lead us to the final thing that Jesus prays for. We touched a little bit on this last week, but we're going to kind of dive a little bit deeper into it, specifically for us as a church. This is what Jesus says. So John 17, John 17, I'm going to start in verse 20. 
and 21. This is what Jesus is praying. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Let me, let me pray and ask God just to help us in our text this morning uh, and that he might just do a work in our hearts. Father in heaven, we love you. And God, I just thank you that you allow us this moment to be here together. God, we think of those who can't physically be with us uh, for a variety of reasons here this morning. And Father, I just pray that, uh, that you would, in this moment, just encourage them, touch them. Uh, God, that they would know that you're with them. Father, but for, for those of us here in the room or those of us who are listening online, God, um, I believe that you can do something supernatural through this preaching moment. And I also believe that it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you and your spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come? God, there's only, there's only a work that you can do. And we need you to do that work. God, we need you to make your word come alive to us. God, we need the moment where uh, we experience and feel as though you're talking directly to us. I need that in this moment. And so, God, I'm just asking um, that by your grace and in your mercy, God, that you would just do that. God, let us encounter your love uh, through your prayer for us. And God, let us be transformed and shaped and changed. God, would you just confront uh, different ideologies or opinions or preferences, God, that keep us from loving one another? God, would you dismantle those? And in its place, God, would you grow uh, in us your heart? God, give us your heart, the same heart that you have when you're praying this, Jesus. Give us that heart right now. And again, that's all your work. So Holy Spirit, just work freely, I pray. Jesus, I love you so much. Um, and I'm just asking these things in your powerful resurrection name. Amen. So what we're seeing here in John 17 is Jesus wants us to be one in purpose, one in love for another, and in our dependence on Christ. He's praying for our unity, uh, and he says specifically he wants us to be one like he and the Father are one. And we touched on this last week, but he could have prayed for anything here. He, he, there's a long list of things that Jesus could have asked the Father for in the last moments of his life. But it's as if he knew that we weren't going to struggle to maintain our differences. He knew we'd be pretty good at that. Um, but maintaining our unity would be a struggle. And it, and it has been. I mean, we've already seen it in this book, in the book of John. Uh, on the last night here, the night, uh, uh, the last night of Jesus' life, they're actually arguing. Some of his disciples are arguing who's going to be the, the greatest in the kingdom. In, in this group that Jesus has, these disciples, he's got uh, Simon the zealot, who he recruited, and Matthew the, the tax collector, who he uh, recruited. And the, the zealots were a group that was committed to overthrowing this Roman law. They were, they were like revolutionaries. And then Matthew, the tax collector, uh, he's actually working for the Roman government. And not just that, but he's exploiting his own people, the Jews. And so Jesus grabs these two guys and puts them in the same small group together. 
And then if we turn the page, if, if we go to the right a little bit, we get to the, to the book of Acts where the, the church starts and comes alive and, and you get six chapters in and now you've got the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews and the Hebraic Jews were discriminating against the Hellenistic widows and there are these ethnicity issues and there's cultural issues and the widows are not being taken care of like they need to. And a few weeks into the church, you've already got division. Next book, you go to Romans chapter 14. There's an issue in the church because some ate meat. And there's other people in the church who think we should only eat vegetables. You guys can figure out which side I'm on. But go to Corinthians, next book. Apostle Paul says, look, some of you are saying, well, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter and I'm of Paul. And some of you are trying to be super self-righteous. You're like, I'm of Jesus. So you got now we're picking sides of who we're with. Go to the next book, Galatians chapter two. You got the circumcised and the uncircumcised and the ones who were had issues with the ones who weren't. Go to the book of Ephesians. Paul talks all about there's this wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles that needs to be torn down. The book of Philippians, go over one more book. Eudia and Syncta, there's these two women who couldn't get along and Paul has to write and I just kind of see Paul penning this. He says, please, please, ladies, because you belong to the Lord, can you settle your disagreement? And that's just the next five books after John. C.S. Lewis says one of the great allies to division in the church is the church itself. So why can't unity be easy? Why is this such a struggle? I'm not, I'm not even talking about the world. I'm not talking about like the world, everything that's kind of like happening kind of like out there. I'm asking about the family of Jesus, whether it's big C, so the church worldwide, globally, or little C church locally. Why is it so difficult for us to walk in real loving unity? And, and the short answer is, and we'll kind of tease this out a little bit, but the short answer is sin is a massive threat to our unity. If you, if you start in the very beginning, which is where the biblical story starts, in the very beginning, and if you're not familiar with it, um, Adam and Eve are there. They're the man and the woman uh, that God creates, enjoying perfect relationship with God and with one another. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that the, the serpent who's the accuser, who's the deceiver, Satan sl slithers in or walks in, uh, and Adam and Eve are tempted they're suspicious of God's word over their lives, and they do what God asked them not to do, and they plunge all of humanity into death and darkness. And this is and was the playbook of Satan, the accuser, the deceiver, sowing seeds of doubt into what is true. That is uh, what God had said. His famous line is, did God really say, and it's the same thing that he's saying to you and to me today, did God really say? It's the playbook of the accuser, of the deceiver, to sow seeds of distrust, which causes anxiety, which leads to anger, which leads to tearing things apart disinformation or tainted truth as a cause of division. I think in our culture now, part of what's making us so tired, so like just worn out all the time is us constantly wondering who's actually telling us the truth. Is anybody feeling that or is it just me? Like you're just more out, like who's actually telling us the, tr the truth and, and pick any category you want. It could be news, medical professionals, politicians, pastors. We have that tension across the board, and it's wearing us out, and it's tearing us apart. 
It, it, it's spiritual warfare. It's the, the active agent of sowing lies is principalities, powers, demonic spirits who are hell-bent on destroying everything they can destroy. So you got Adam and Eve. They hear God walking in the garden like they've heard him so many times before. They've enjoyed fellowship with him in this moment in the cool of the day, but it's different this time. Now instead of fellowship, now instead of communion with him like they normally would, the scripture says that the man and the woman actually hide themselves in the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve were the first to isolate because of sin. And it's been the same for us ever since. Because our sin uh, makes us hide in our shame. It makes us hide in our embarrassment. Or, or maybe we just so enjoy our sin so much, it just makes us hide in our own sin. And our personal sin causes corporate division. Again, if you know the story, you know there's a moment when God comes to the man and the woman. And Adam, he says, Lord, it's this woman that you put in here with me. She gave me the fruit. It's her fault. And this is just a hunch. I'm not an Old Testament scholar. I think it's an educated hunch. I don't think that really went over well with Eve. It's the first account of a man sleeping on the couch. <laughs> but this is what sin does. It gets us alone and it makes us turn inward and it isolates us, makes us, makes us feel alone. Tennessee Williams, who is an American poet, he has this line where he says, we are all sentenced to solitary confinement inside our own skins for life. He's talking about like, we can never truly be known. We can't truly ever let anybody know exactly who we are. So we live this life trapped in solitary confinement in our own skins. And that's what, that's what the human experience, apart from being known and loved by God, is. Sin makes us think no one understands that God is holding out on us if we live by his word or live by his ways. That's the, that's the big lie, that somehow we know what's best for us, not God, and we do everything we can to take what we need, and that's what sin is. It's just taking what you want all the time with no regard for anybody else, and the beauty of Christian community, what Jesus is praying for here, is that it allows us to see our sin and expose our selfishness and be a conduit for us to experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and the love of God. That's what Christian community is. It's a, it's a bunch of sinners who, by grace, realize their flaws and their failures and, in love, collectively remind one another of who God is and what he's done and what he promises and how powerful he is. If, if, if you're uh, new to the life of this church or, and you'd like to get connected into the life of this church, on February 6th, we have an environment that starts that's called Launchpoint. It's like an on-ramp into the life of this church where you learn about things called redemption communities where essentially small groups where this Christian community can be lived out. It's a community that says, get your eyes off yourself and get them on Jesus because he dealt with your sin fully and finally on the cross. And I realize that being in Christian community has its challenges. And, and I get that feeling that Jesus wouldn't have prayed for our unity if it was something that would come so easily to us. And, and, and sometimes it's not sin that keeps us out of community. Sometimes it's life. Oh, we've got schedules and obligations and sickness and work stuff and youth sports. That's just a lot. We just have a lot going on. 
I want to just invite you, though, to, if you can just kind of try something on. Because maybe you can't commit to an every week RC meeting, and maybe you can, maybe you should, I don't know. But, you, but, but I just want you to try this on. Maybe you can just decide, all right, I'm going to choose to intentionally be available when I'm needed. Maybe I can't attend your kind of weekly thing. Maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe I'm just not in a place in my life. Maybe I just got too much. Maybe I can't. Maybe I can. Maybe you can't. But could you just, just try on and just say, you know what? I'm going to choose to be intentionally available when I'm needed. I'm going to look at my calendar, and I'm going to choose what to cut and what to keep so that I can be available when somebody needs me. The point is not to shame you because you're not in a small group. The point is, we need to know each other's needs when we are with each other. The bottom line is this. This unity that Jesus is praying for, unity happens in community. Unity happens in community. That's the way that God designed it. And what Jesus is saying in his prayer here is, it's worth it. And if we trust the authority of Jesus' words in other aspects of our lives, we have to trust his word in this. He wants us to be around other Christians, as painful as that might be for you. In this prayer, what Jesus is doing is he's letting us in on the mystery of the triune God, distinct from one another, but united in their love for one another. Look again at verse 21, what Jesus is praying here. He's saying that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. One in communion. They are in one another yet distinct. This is what God wants for us. We're distinct. There are differences but one in purpose and action and mission with mutual love and submission for and to one another by the grace of God that we've received. You, are, you and I as Christians are invited into the triune love displayed and experienced in the Trinity. We are drawn into God who is love so that God might begin to mark us with that love at the deepest possible level. And what we as Christians hold most commons is that we are in one communion with the God of the universe. So Christians in the same way, yes, have their distinctives, but we are united together by grace and mutual submission to love for one another. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 5. And in this chapter, he's talking specifically about marriage, but it applies really to all relationships. And Ephesians 5.21 says this, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. Order your life under one another. Like, just what Paul's saying here is, like, if you have a marriage where you're constantly trying to, like, out-submit one another, you're going to have a great marriage. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourself to your elders. It's a, it's a good word for us in our culture where we really don't appreciate those who are older. And he's saying younger people Submit yourself to those who are older. And then, Peter, I love this. He goes, in fact, all of you, why don't you just clothe yourself in humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. There's a pastor and author. His name's Francis Chan. He's written several books. He's writing a book right now on unity in the church. And he recently did an uh, interview uh, about this book that he's writing. And this is what he said. This is kind of long. I'm going to read it, but, but it's very good. So try to track with me. He says this, he says, we worship a God who desires unity with his children and between his children. 
He sent his son to bring his children together under his care. No good father wants to see separation between his children. He says, as a father of seven, it would crush me to see separ- to, to, it would crush me to see any of my children rejected and separated from the others. It would anger me to see any of my children being divisive. He's talking about his own perspective as a human dad. And then he says, in God's list of things that he hates, which is found in Proverbs chapter six, God lists out the things that he hates. He places, listen to this, he places greatest emphasis on one who sows discord among brothers. He calls it an abomination. That should stop you dead in your tracks. And then he says this. He says, I'm guilty of having sowed discord. Even now, as I study all these passages about division, I'm embarrassed by my lack of remorse. Only a redemptive God with grace beyond comprehension could be this patient with me and still use me to teach about unity. I have spent most of my Christian life wishing that certain pockets of Christians did not exist. I was too quick to label people as false teachers, warning believers to keep their distance from them. And while there is a time to warn others about false teachers, there is also a time to do your homework. By being too quick to judge, I have made costly mistakes. I jumped on bandwagons that were popular in my theological circle, attacking men and women whom I now know to be God's beloved children. And Proverbs paints this as more than a mistake. All of that was an abomination to him. And maybe I was cunning enough to refrain from openly slandering them in public, but I'm sure my heart attitude spilled out of my mouth. None of us are as good at faking love as we think. Besides, and listen to this, he says, besides, just, just because my statements weren't made in public doesn't mean God hated it less. Every unkind word spoken in private about one of his children was heard by him. It really wasn't private. And I doubt I would have said those things if I had been aware of their dad's presence in the room. Sometimes the secret conversations are the most dangerous. They seed deeper-rooted division in a person who then passes on the slander. That's unholy discipleship, and God hates it. Unity requires humility. It requires listening to each other. The enemy's strategy from the beginning has always been divide and conquer, uh, but that's where the being one another really has, being with one another has always been God's plan. It's been God's plan from the beginning. And going back to that moment in creation, God makes all the things and he's like, good, 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 that's good. He makes Adam in his own, man in his own image. He's like, that's very good. But the first thing that he says that's not good as he's creating, he says it's not good for man to be alone. So he puts Adam, if you're not familiar with the story, he puts Adam in this deep sleep, and then from Adam's rib, he creates uh, Eve. Adam wakes up, rolls over, and he goes, whoa, man. Woman, that's a church joke, right? (laughs) And what God is showing us in creation, it's not good for you to do the life alone. He creates a help mate. And that helpmate literally means, Adam, you cannot survive without her. You need her to do life. Um, even even when, when, when Jesus teaches us to pray, 
He starts off, he says, start like this, our Father, our, reminding us that we are connected as brothers and sisters, just unity with one another is part of what being a Christian is. And so our gathering together, like when we are able to come together like this, it's not just so that you can show up for an hour and maybe get some inspiration so that you can go into the world and live your life in such a way that you're totally isolated from one another. You have no interaction with people in your community. You've missed the point on what Jesus has built for his mission with his people in the world. You're missing out on the hope that he has for you. You're missing out on what Jesus is praying for you. We don't get to limit the Christian life to podcasting our favorite preachers because that doesn't reflect the prayer of Jesus in your life. His prayer for you fulfilling your purposes in life, his prayer that you would know the truth and have purpose and be whole is wrapped up in the way that you live life with other Christians and love your brothers and sisters. Brian Berger, who's a pastor over all Next Gen Ministries here, um, he said this to me this week. I don't know if it's original with him, but he said it to me, so he gets the credit for it. But he said this, it used to be that the winsomeness of our gathered life together, so if you just study the early church and the things that they did that were completely countercultural, the way that they valued women, the way that they valued human life, the way that they took care of children, the way that they just cared for each other, the way... The, the whole way that they lived life together, it used to be that the winsomeness of that was what attracted unbelievers to the message of the gospel. And the preaching and the worship shaped that life together. That life together was the main thing. He said, it seems now we're relying on the preaching and the worship to be the thing that attracts unbelievers and we're forsaking communal life together. Uh, a, a month ago, I think, about a, month, about a month ago, my wife and I um, were invited to a, a, a wedding. I officiated a wedding for, some, for uh, some people in our church. It was an amazing wedding, super beautiful. We got to go on like a kind of a fancy date night. It was really great. Um, and after the ceremony, we were walking to the reception, and my wife, uh, we're, we're just kind of walking up to where the reception is, and my wife just stopped this woman and said, can I just tell you how stunning you are? You look absolutely beautiful tonight. And me and like her husband are looking at each other like, what do we do? Do we say, does, are we supposed to say the same thing to each other? Like guys are just so different. I'm like I would never ever cross my mind and stop a guy and be like, hey, great job. <laughs> but I was so struck by that and I was thinking about like us here together. And I was like, you know what? That's what we should be doing. That, that's what we should be doing with each other when we are together. Like when we bump into each other on these moments where we're actually able, able to gather together, I should come up to you and be like, hey, the calling that God has on your life, don't forget how special that is. The things that God says over you, you just need to hear them again. So let me, let me repeat them to you. The, the, the vocation you're in, you at, at home with the kids, you out in the marketplace, you on the pickleball court, you wherever God has you, you just need to know like God has something very specific for you and I want you to know that I am for you. And I love you 
and I'm cheering you on. And this week, I want to be praying something really specific for you. How, how, can, I, how can I do that? Be encouraged. Like, like when we get together, we are just like hyping each other up in who we are in Christ and what Christ has for us. And we're just reminding one another, God is on your side. And that's not just like an idea that like my wife kind of like came up with or whatever. It's actually in the scripture. Can I show you? First Thessalonians 5, 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Second Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, exclamation point. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Hebrews three thirteen. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The author of Hebrews kind of ratches it up a little bit. He's like, actually, you're encouraging one another helps you uh, to, to not be hardened by sin sin's deceitfulness. So there's like even something more powerful by us like stopping one another and putting hands on each other and said, I'm for you. I love you. God loves you. God's for you. God's got like crazy mission on your life and crazy purpose for you. Walk into it. Step into it. Obey him. Do what he says. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider. Hebrews saying, you should actually think about it. Put some intentionality behind it. Next time you come on a Sunday morning, put some intentionality behind who you're going to step in front of and who you're going to be. He said, consider Consider how we're going to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And Jesus says, when you do that, there's something about that that's connected to the watching world knowing that I am the Son of God. Look at verse 22 as we try to get through this passage here quickly. I've given them the glory. Jesus is, pre- Jesus is praying. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I am I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. Jesus is saying he can create the kind of love between Christians that will win the watching world to him. When the world sees the love that we have, God uses that to take an unbeliever and move them to belief in the one true God. Jesus is saying that this love is going to be different than the world's definition of love because it generates action. Action done with one another and for one another at a cost to ourselves because Christian love is a different kind of world than what the different kind of love than what the world offers because it's a love that's worked out. It's demonstrated. That's what you see in the person of Jesus. It's demonstrated by its costliness. It it costs me something. It, I have to die to love you. Josh Butler, who's a, one, one of our pastors, lead pastor at Redemption Tempe, he says this. He says, the cost of union with Christ is the death of our independence. The cost of true worship is the exile of our autonomy. The, the early church in the book of Acts embraced this. If a need came up, if there's a need came up in the, in the community, people start selling their stuff to meet that need. And it, and it wasn't a one-time thing. They did it all the time until every need was met. I can tell what you love by what you spend your money on and where you spend your time. It's, just, it's so easy to track what you love, what's most important to you. I'll just say, well, show me where you spend your money and show me where you spend your time and wherever the most of that is funneled to, that's what you love. Love is easily observable. Now, 
more than ever because we're constantly displaying what we love. We constantly want you to know what we, what we love. And so the question is, what's most visible in your life? What's most visible in your life? Like, what do you put out there the most more than anything else? Because according to Jesus' prayer, it should be our unity, our love for one another, that be, because that's the image. When we're projecting that with all of our life, the world will know Jesus. This is what he's saying. The world tells us, listen, gather around only those who love what you love. That way you won't have to die to any of the things or any of the ideas or any of the preferences or any of the opinions that you are in love with. If you hang out with all the people who just think the same as you, you won't ever have to die to any of those things. And you can live that way. You could totally live that way because lots of people do. It's just not the way that God has called his church to live. Because Christian love is impartial. Worldly love is based on similarities and affinities. But God calls us to have this like diversified portfolio of relationships that we are investing in. Christian love is diverse where people of different ethnicities and backgrounds and upbringings come together as brothers and sisters under the shed blood of Christ. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity says, well, everyone has to look like me and think like me and act like me. Unity says, we aren't all doing the same thing the same way. We are doing different things, but in the same direction. And for Christian unity, it's for the same name, the name of Jesus. We are all going to have differences, and that's okay when we have common love for each other and for Jesus despite those differences. That kind of love shows Jesus to the world, and that's the whole point. But we cannot have unity if we show partiality because that's not how love works. That's not the way that we have been loved in Christ Jesus. We need to learn from and listen to those who are different than us and gain a gospel perspective on love and unity. This church in its recent history went through a real season of division and went through a real season of, of hardship like this. Our elders went through a season of patient and pain staking, listening, and learning, and our unity today is a result of their humility. Lastly, and we're almost done, Christian love is forgiving. Christian love is different because when relationships are broken, the gospel says that they can be reconciled and put back together. Jesus is saying the world knows the love we have, uh, the, the, the love we have in the Father because of the way that we forgive one another. When we sin against each other, and we will all the time, they are going to forgive each other and work to mend it. The world doesn't work that way. When you cross someone, you're, you're done. It's, it's over. With the world, it's, there's a cancel culture, but with Christians, it's a commitment culture. Yes, you've sinned against me. Yes, you've offended me, but I'm committed to you because I love you. So when we withhold forgiveness, we look just like the world, and our love is not any different than the world's love. And, and it's like we have this kind of amnesia for what God has done for us. But the scripture says, when we know that we've been forgiven much, we love much. Tim Keller is a pastor. He says, bitterness against another person is atheism. And this is not the kind of love that we just like will ourselves into. It's not like we're all just going to leave here and we're like, all right, I'm just going to go out there and just love people. It's only by being deeply saturated in and convinced of and consumed by how deeply loved we are by God that we get there. That's what verse 23 is about. Look at that real quick. 
Jesus is saying, I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Two words to key in on there. They might not have ever stood out to you before. Even as. Even as. He says two words, two words that reveal the amazing love that the Father has for you. The Father loves you even as he loves Jesus. The Father loves you the same way that he loves the Son. We're loved with an even as kind of love. Now, I want you to just imagine with me, maybe you never thought about this, but imagine with me just for a moment what it was like when Jesus ascended and went home to be with the Father. This, this Jesus who left heaven, he put on flesh, he came to earth, he lived faithfully to the mission that the Father gave him. He endured everything that we endure. He kept in perfect step in an intimacy with the Father. And after, in this moment, after he's betrayed, denied, wrongfully accused, sentenced to die, after he is beaten, after he is spit on, after he is ridiculed, after he is embarrassed, after he is humiliated, after he is stripped naked and his flesh is ripped from bone, after he agonizes on the cross, after he conquers Satan's sin and death, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. What do you think that moment looked like in heaven? What do you think that was like? As, as like heaven was like just peering into like, God, God, what are you doing? What are you up to? And they watch all of that unfold and Jesus ascends back to heaven to the right hand of the Father. Do you ever think about what that was like? What was that moment like in heaven? Do you think the Father, do you think the Father was pleased with his son in that moment? I get really excited when my kids like pull their own teeth out. Could you imagine how excited the father was when the son came home in that moment? Listen, what Jesus is saying is the father loves you like that. The father loves you like, like that. That's the kind of love the father has for you even as he loves the son. Could you imagine if you believe that and let it shape every part of your life? Could you imagine if you believed that kind of love was spoken over you and that love of God was for you in that? Like, what would that do to all your, like, your insecurity and your fear? You think that'd change it? How would it affect your constant striving for approval and acceptance and recognition, trying to fill that hole in your life? If you believed that you were loved with that kind of even as love, how would that change that? That you don't, have to, you don't have to wonder how loved or prized you are because you've already been crowned with dignity and honor. If you believe that, then you could work in such a way. You'd have such freedom in your work. And, and yeah, you'd get success and, and you'd achieve and you would do well and, and your identity wouldn't be tied to that approval because you're already in Christ and he's in you and your identity as a son or a daughter is better than any title that is ever gonna be spoken over you anyway. 
uh, one of the former elders here was a mentor to me for a long time. In fact, he's the very first person my wife and I met when we first came to East Valley Bible Church. Now, Gilbert Jerry Smith, he was uh, extremely successful w- with State Farm. And uh, he took me to his garage once and showed me all the plaques, all the pins, all the trophies. He's in their ring of honor. I mean, he has like extremely successful. And he's like, this ain't it. This is not it. There's nothing better that's ever been spoken over my life than the way that God loves me. How would it affect your relationships with one another? You wouldn't have to put the burdens and the expectations on one another, fulfill something they never could. You could just love others freely without holding each other hostage to give you what you need because you already know I have everything in Christ. I could just love you. I could just love you. That would be a radical gift all on its own that we know that we are loved with an even as kind of love. But then Jesus, and we end with this, he kind of levels up this prayer. I mean, that would be enough if you knew you're loved with an even as kind of love. But then he's gonna level up here in verse 24. Father, I want those that you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Okay, stop. We're, we're running a little late, but I just want you to stop because I want you to slow down and I want you to get this. Because Jesus here. Jesus wants something. He's desiring something. And this is what Jesus wants. If you want to know what does Jesus want, this is what he wants. I want my brothers and sisters to be unified, to have mutual love for one another, to be dependent on me for all things, but this is the capstone of what I'm asking for. I want to be with them. And I want them to be with me. I mean, you got people on planet Earth that don't want to be with you. And Jesus says, I do. I do. I want to be with them. And I want them to be with me. And I want them to be with me in a place that I made that's perfect. Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the old heaven, the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, no sorrow, no crying or pain and all these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of water of life. All who are, all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. Church, you are loved and wanted by Jesus. And what Jesus is praying here, he's talking about something that will happen. He's not just throwing something out there like it's a Christmas wish list. He's talking about something that he knows will happen because he knows exactly what it's going to take for that to be a reality. Jesus knows that for him to get what he desires, for you and me to be with him, he's going to have to take on himself all of our sin and all of our shame, which he's gonna do shortly after this prayer. 
And for us to be in this truth, for us to be sanctified or set apart by this truth, it can't just be a once a week thing. It can't just be a once a week podcast or even just a once a week like attendance to a service. It will take life on life, arms locked, reminding each other of who we are in Jesus and who he is and what he has done and what he will do until he returns. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this prayer, Jesus. Thank you for what we have in you, and God, thank you for what you've promised. God, I thank you for your desire for us to be one. And it's not a unity, God, we're seeing just for the sake of unity. It's a unity that has a real purpose so that the world will know who you are. And so, God, I'm praying um, that we would be this kind of church that you've prayed for, that we would encourage one another, God, and that our encouragement and our love and our respect, even despite our differences for one another, God, would be winsome to the world about who you are, Jesus. But we need you for that. We need you for that. So, God, would you work that in us and through us for your fame, Jesus, and in your name we pray, amen.